Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror, and Art DeRoche of The Athletic. If you judge them as stereotypes, they're polar opposites. Jose Mourinho is strategically sour and can be tactically dour. Jurgen Klopp is deliberately engaging and tactically adventurous. It's not that simple, of course. As we stand, their teams are level on points at the top of the Premier League. Liverpool remain title favourites, though they have a far inferior goal difference to Spurs, but can Mourinho teach Klopp a thing or two in this, the strangest season? What do you think, Darren? Well, it'll be fascinating to find out because I think on the face of it, Liverpool fans will say no. But Mourinho will point to his record of winning titles and Champions Leagues in several different countries. He's a guy who knows how to get unfancied teams over the line. You look at what he did with Inter Milan, and that will tell you everything. I think he's a guy who can do the siege mentality and the inspiration to run through brick walls as well as anybody. If you look at what he did in his first spell at Chelsea, if you look at what he did again at Inter Milan, even some people point to Real Madrid as being a failure, but he inspired those players too. And I would suggest, even if you look at Manchester United and all the problems that existed there, he is the one that took them to silverware. He is a guy who knows how to win in the most adverse of circumstances. And if there is to be anyone other than Liverpool or City winning the title, you would put his Tottenham side, his recalibrated Tottenham side, Mike, right up there. Yeah, I suppose it's it's pointless, isn't it, uh, looking for signs of progression or evolution in the way he does his job because he is what he is. In a broader sense, do you think the game's coming back to him tactically? It seems pretty suited in this overcrowded season, you know, low block, quick counter. Do you think almost events are playing into his hands? I think there's a tiny bit of that because when you look at how Tottenham are playing now, they look like Mourinho team where he has the pieces that he wants to, he wanted to put into place in the summer. So you look at 
Pierre-Emerick Koyberg, for, for instance, in midfield, that anchor there that can also progress the ball quite well, as he did at Southampton. And, and then they've got uh, Regulion at left-back, a natural left-back, which they didn't have for large parts of last season. I think last season it was more about getting Tottenham over the line. Everyone saw how happy he was to get the Europa League spot in the closing stages of the restart. But since then, I think it's been about just building on that and building on the principles he's had at every club he's been at. And so far this season, I feel that it's been more of a a Mourinho team that knows where they're going rather than hoping they will get to the bare minimum, which last season was a Europa League spot. Yeah, and they're they're back in the Europa League on Thursday, uh, home to Lugo Goretz. And, And probably the way that they've handled that, the overload of fixtures because of that competition has, has told you something broader about Mourinho's impact. Is is the key difference, Darren, between United under Mourinho and Spurs under Mourinho, the buy-in that he's got from the current set of players? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that he was battling at Manchester United against egos in a way of working at United that will eventually prove Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's downfall. Solskjaer's a yes-man. Solskjaer will work with what the club give him. When there are clear issues to be addressed in the United team and in the United squad, the United prefer commercial benefits rather than the footballing benefits of dipping into the transfer market. But when you look at Spurs, they have addressed specifically all of the areas that they needed to to be able to compete with that fixture backlog that you're talking about. So, for example... They don't have to play Kane. I know he had did play him in the last Europa League game match day, but I, they've got Carlos Vinicius, who once he finds his feet will be an able deputy when the fixtures really do start to pile up in the second half of the season. They've got Gareth Bale still to come back. When Alderweireld was injured at the weekend, Joe Roden was able to come on, and they could still go for Milan Skriniar from Inter Milan in the January transfer window. They know they have a real chance. And if you look back to the season where Leicester won the Premier League title. That too was a season of transition. All of the big clubs were, were either trying to change the way they do things, uh, re-evolve their sides, if you like. I think that might be grammatically correct. Um, <laughs> or, or, and, and if you look at this season, again, it's a season of upheaval. It's a season where lots of the big clubs have lost key players. OK, we'll get to Liverpool in the way that they cope superbly with that whenever you recover them. But I think certainly there is another similar opportunity for another team to maybe make an impact this season. I think that could be Spurs. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, Harry Kane. Ah, he's, he's certainly added another dimension as a player, hasn't he? I think it's nine assists this season and he's winning the ball all over the pitch. How far can he go and how far can he develop or in which way will he develop, do you think? I think the way where we look at strikers in recent years anyway, there's been kind of a blueprint with what Roberto Firmino's done at Liverpool, for instance, whereas now he's kind of gone off the ball. And I think when you look at that complete striker, that is Harry Kane. And I think when Tottenham's documentary came out on Amazon a few months back, there was a clip where Jose Mourinho told Harry Kane that he was going to make him explode and I think we're really just starting to see that now 
when when you look at Harry Kane's how Harry Kane's game has developed so far under Mourinho, I think the number of assists is probably what catches people's eyes. But as Gary Neville spoke about a few weeks back, that area of his game where he drops back in to those pockets to spray balls in behind for Son, and now obviously Bergwijn has always been there. It's just that now he's getting more opportunities to do that and they're being finished a lot more often. And I think the big change has been, as you mentioned, the defensive work from the front, which Firmino has been credited with at Liverpool to a much lesser extent. That was why Alexandre Lacazette kept his place in the Arsenal team for so long. And I think the way that Kane has approached that and succeeded very much with all those facets of the game is why he's probably the most complete forward in the Premier League right now. Can I ask, um, do you think that Kane, the way that Kane has taken his game to a level, another level, or that Mourinho has inspired him to in the same way that Pep has helped Aguero before his injuries, of course, to get to another level, do you feel that Aubameyang and Lacazette should be doing the same? Because they're both good goal scorers. Aubameyang is a great goal scorer, but neither have added that dimension to their game that Kane and Aguero have, have they? No, I think... Arteta in particular has tried to get that out of Lacazette because as a striker, he's much more dependable, not in terms of just goal scoring. Let's just ignore that for a second, even though that's the most important thing. When you look at the complete package, he's a bit more of a hold-up player than Aubameyang is. And that's probably why, that is why Mikel Arteta favoured him so often last season and why despite scoring so little goals he he stayed in the team for Aubameyang I think he's proven under Arteta that he can mould his game to the demands of a manager with how he took the role of left wing under him because it was much more defensive under Arteta than it was under Emery and Wenger who both both of those two played him on the left too it was just he had more pressing demands on him under Arteta as well as having to track back to help the left back in terms of them evolving as players I don't see them doing what Harry Kane does at that level in terms of both being a provider a defender and a scorer I don't I just I feel Harry Kane has got to the level where he is so efficient in all areas of that of the game and he won't he won't be touched by those two in in those respects I don't think it's all it's all down, really, isn't it? Management, man management, I suppose. And we know how Mourinho works in that area, don't we, Darren? Let's look at another case in point. And Dombele, he's started the last six. He was showered, I suppose, what we could call, you know, with tough love. He's a bit of a pet project for Mourinho, isn't he? Yeah, he is, because he sees a player in there and there was a, a lot, I was going to say a lot of talk, I can tell you that the player wanted to leave. And I think it would have reflected badly on Mourinho had he left, had he been somebody who didn't want to work with a manager with a reputation. Unjustly, in some cases, some people would say it's deserved. You'd, you pay your money, you take your choice. But it would have not have looked good for Mourinho had he said, look, I want out. I want to go and work with someone else. I can't work for this guy. And Mourinho has managed, well, he's managed him. <laughs> he has got into his head. He's convinced him of the way 
in which he can improve as an individual, as a player, as a leader in the team. And as you say, the stats are now starting to bear themselves out. One of the things both Mourinho and Levy did with him is they, they told them the story of Modric. When Modric went to Real Madrid and in his first year he was voted the worst signing at the club by what is a brutal media in Spain. Modric since, well, we all know what's happened with the four Champions League titles and the esteem in which is now held, not just in Spain, but all over the world. And I think if you look at Ndombele, he's slowly coming back. He's got a way to go, of course, but he's slowly coming back to the guy that made our eyes pop out to a certain extent when he played in the Champions League for Lyon. I think he's going to go on to become a key player in the Tottenham side. Yeah. All teams have almost touchstone players, don't they? Um, in Liverpool's sense, I always get the impression that James Milner is the heartbeat uh, of, of that particular team and group. We saw his true worth, didn't we, uh, against Leicester? He was everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a performance that underpins him as a person as well as a player. I feel that... When you look at these teams, so Liverpool uh, in the last few years, for instance, Manchester United back in the noughties and even the Arsenal side that rivaled Manchester United in the late 90s and early noughties, they have those players that everybody knows they can depend upon. And I feel that in James Milner, Liverpool have that and have had that since he walked through the door almost five years ago now, I think. I think with, with him... It's not just about, okay, he can perform on the pitch, but it's the trust that he he gets from his teammates as well. And the fact that he isn't going to complain about having to play left back, having to play right back. And I think that is a quality that should be applauded in today's game because I know when people look at players, they expect them to be one thing. Everybody tries to put players into a box. Even when we talk about Harry Kane, everybody at first may just see him as a goal scorer, but players can do different things. Players can fit into different systems. And I think the way he's approached it with Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool has been an example to players who may now get opportunities in positions they didn't feel that there was their best position before all these injuries started cropping up this season. So I think the way he's taken on the challenge at Liverpool and throughout his career, to be honest, has been an example to many professionals that are going to come after him. Yeah, you mentioned injuries there. Milner only ended up playing in midfield last night because of the you know yet another injury to Naby Keita. Is he looking like one of those vulnerable players who spends most of his time in a treatment room, Darren? Navigator, yeah, very unfortunate indeed. It's been a really luckless spell for him at Liverpool uh, since he's arrived. I mean, they're keeping faith with him because they know that there is a player there. And eventually, if they're patient with him, they'll get the player that they signed from Leipzig a couple of years ago. But I think you're right. I think he's a very unfortunate guy. And you could see the, the frustration etched in his face as he was coming off the pitch yesterday on Sunday, I'll say for anyone who's not listening to this on Monday morning. <laughs> uh, but you could see the frustration etched in his face. And yet another opportunity to make his mark during a period in which they've been robbed of so many influential players. And yet 
that's taken away from him. I think you're absolutely right. But, you know, in general terms, like you say about Milner, he is somebody who slots in, doesn't ask a question, epitomises the kind of attitude that Klopp wants from his players in his teams. And I, I have to say, guys, I, I see that performance against Leicester as the performance of the season so far. I know Aston Villa are outstanding against Liverpool. I know Tottenham were brilliant against Manchester United. But I, I think for a Leicester side undefeated in their previous six games, they'd won six of their last nine Premier League games. They'd all they'd, they had so many of their top players available. I know not all of them were available, but they looked as though they would take advantage of a Liverpool side who that they had a very makeshift back four, didn't they? With Fabinho at centre half and Milner starting at right back and having to move into midfield, the, the confidence looked fragile, and yet they did not lay a glove on Liverpool. And I'm sorry, if you look at that Jota game, because it wasn't even as if Liverpool eked out the victory. The Jota game, the Jota goal, forgive me, that came after a sequence of 30 passes. Mm. That's Liverpool playing at their irrepressible best and not compromising their style because of the players that they've lost. That's what you call man management, imposing your will on the players so that they can impose their will on top quality opposition. And that also involves a, a great degree of faith, doesn't it, Art? You know, let's look at Curtis Jones, for instance. That was only his third Premier League start, but he looked you know, really assured. You know, he got down and dirty when he needed to, which for a young player is is quite significant, I think. When you look at that, is that a sign of a really healthy group and club that young players feel at ease in the biggest environment. I think so. I think with Curtis Jones as well, you've got to remember his performance against Everton last season in the FA Cup and as well stepping up to take the winning penalty against Arsenal in the Carabao Cup last season. I feel him as an example is probably a, a great one in terms of a young Liverpool player that feels confident enough within the group to make an impact, but also has the respect of his teammates to have the license to make that impact. And I feel that that is something that is really invaluable in teams across England, across the world, really, when you can build that environment in a club where the young players there feel like it's realistic that they can make a change, even if even if there are world-class class players in the first-team squad, they will have their opportunity. And you see that with how he's been kept at the club rather than sent on loan. I feel that could have been not an easy way out. It's obviously a very important experience for a lot of players that are sent out on loan. But when you look at the quality that Liverpool have, their first team is very streamlined. And then they've got the players that can come on, get a bit more experience in these circumstances and build on what they've done throughout Monday to Friday week and then make the impact on Saturday when Jurgen Klopp knows that they're ready to perform. Can I just come back in there, Mike, if I, mm, if sure. I can? Because I, I think Art is so right. I, we, we're talking about the performances on the pitch, but this is a club performance because when the top players aren't available, you have to have ready the younger players to be able to step into the bridge. And that's not just the job of the manager. That's the job of the academy manager. That's the job of the people behind the scenes, being able to make sure that the temperament of the younger players to come in 
is is right. Make sure that the ability to be able to compete with the pressure, to, to cope with the pressure that will be on them to compete is right. And, and that is not, that doesn't happen overnight. So as Art was saying, you know, you look at the, the pressure situations they've been in before and that the way that they've coped with them. So when Liverpool are without their captain, their best player, their top goal scorer, their top assistant in the last few seasons, their marquee summer signing, you know, all these players know that they're not stepping into the bridge and thinking, oh my goodness, I've got to follow them. They've just got to be the best version of themselves. And when they come into the team, they are able to compete. So Nat Phillips does well. You just mentioned a second, uh, Curtis Jones does well. He's been there. He's not afraid to slot in and play alongside these big players. I think that's a club performance, not just a team performance. Yeah, it'll be certainly interesting to see what sort of team Klopp sends out against Atalanta in the Champions League, simply because, you know, you mentioned that Phillips there, Darren. I would imagine that he would come into the centre of the defence. And in that, you've got senior players, haven't you, Art, who, you know, rather like Milner, as we've already discussed, know their role, they're comfortable in their versatility. What about a shout-out to people like Fabinho, and Wijnaldum, you know, they, they seem to have just taken everything in their stride. I think out of those two, Wijnaldum especially, because at Newcastle, we really saw that he is a player that can offer so much to an attack, both in a goal-scoring and creative sense. Whereas I don't want to say he's been restricted by Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, but his role is a, is a bit more refined in the Liverpool midfield, where he is in a system and he has to work to that system. We've even seen that with his performances for the Netherlands, he's got a bit more freedom to properly influence games in that sense, in a more attacking sense. But having that confidence in the manager and his teammates to perform the role he's given at Liverpool and do it so well, I feel is a credit to him to be able to take the information on board from Klopp and respect it. and then carry it out and also to those around him who understand his role as well as he does. So if, for example, if the centre-back doesn't understand what the defensive midfielder is supposed to do, then that can cause as much chaos as the defensive midfielder not knowing what he's actually supposed to do. Everyone knows everyone's role. And I think that's, as Darren put it a little bit earlier, is a club performance I'd use the word, to get everyone on the same page. And I feel that that is something where Liverpool especially have uh, excelled in the past few years, getting everybody understanding what is required of them to perform and perform at the highest level in the Premier League. Yeah, I think you can say definitely the same thing about Tottenham at the moment. Now, Tottenham, Sunday's game at Chelsea is going to be huge. Okay, Darren, you know, buff up your image here. You know, Mystic Dazza basically said a couple of weeks ago that Chelsea could well win the league. You were right, weren't you? <laughs> a stopped clock is right twice a day, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, I only made that assessment on the basis of watching Chelsea a lot this season. And it's very clear what the problem was early on. Kepa and Christensen. I think with Kepa out of the side and Mendy in the side, Chelsea could do anything they want this season because they've got such security and assuredness in goal. And with Silva in that back line as well, they've got leadership, they've got organisation, and they've got 
a very similar security. And it was interesting at the weekend, he didn't play because of international duty, of course. Rudiger came in. But both those players have got the experience to give calm to that back line. That's why they've conceded, I think, only one goal in their last seven games. And I think that gives the players in front of them the platform to go and play. When you factor in Kanti in front of that back four in his natural position, I know... Uh, he's obviously spent time further forward, but that back four, mopping things up, setting attacks on their way, and then you've got the pace, the creativity, the ingenuity of the players further forward. You know what they can do. People doubted Chelsea because of that 3-3 draw against Southampton. And I think people looked at a, a bigger issue. They looked at potentially the fact that the players were not gelling. They were gelling. They were fantastic in the first 28 minutes of that game when they went 3-0 up. But defensively, they were all over the place. With those two players, three players, Rudiger in there as well, they brought him back into the fold after it looked as though they didn't want him anymore. They could win the league easily this season. That's why, for me, it's wide open. Yeah, because the thing about it, logically, a win in Rennes on Tuesday puts that Champions League group to bed, probably, so they can concentrate on the Premier League. Confidence generates improvement. I think, you know, there's stability, obviously, supplied by Mondi at the back. Ah, can you dwell on the influence of uh, Timo Werner? He seems to be really blossoming at the moment. So, yeah, I think that with Timo Werner, I've been really impressed with the, the way he stepped up to the responsibility of not playing down the middle. Because when you look at the Twitter discourse, I'll call it, um, <laughs> you see the duality of Twitter where there are people who appreciate the contributions he's made on the left-hand side where he can either drift inside or carry the ball himself as he did for the assist where he really just glided up the pitch before sliding in Tammy Abraham for his goal. And then there are people who feel that because he missed two great chances, which he should have taken, I feel he was a bit too cute for the first one where he did like a little reverse shot and then there are a couple of others that he should have buried. And then when he finally did bury a chance, he was offside and people latch onto that and feel that he played terribly because he didn't score. Whereas in actual fact, Frank Lampard probably got what he wanted from Timo Werner in terms of the role he wants Timo Werner to perform on the left is what he did to a tee against Newcastle. And I feel that's the overarching performance that Lampard would have wanted. And I feel in terms of Werner's development in England so far, I feel that's probably the most important thing. He's doing what his manager wants him to do. Yeah, a lot of people on Twitter wibbling about, you know, a, a, was it a, a, a disaster masterclass, I think was the phrase. You know, how, how that can be the case when he's been involved in 11 goals in his last 10 games, eight goals and three assists, you know, it's beyond me. If we're going to look, though, at you know, football, game of opinions and all that, Ah, you know young players well. Who would you pick at right back? Reese James or Tariq Lamptey had he stayed at Chelsea? It's a really tough one because I love Tariq Lamptey as a player. I feel, The first time I actually saw him was for the under-23s when they played Arsenal last October. And although I think Billy Gilmore was the man of the match that day, Tariq Lamptey was... You could see why... Chelsea were so impressed by him. And then, of course, he made his his first team debut for Chelsea at Emirates where he came on in the second half and he made 
an instant impact at right back where he wasn't afraid to take his man on both on the inside and outside channels where he showed that he can use his right foot, but he can use his left foot just as well. And I think in terms of the decision he made to move to Brighton, it's 100% the right decision that he made that move because he can now express his qualities on a more consistent basis. But I do feel that Chelsea weren't wrong to let him go because they have Reese James who has been more consistent at first team level over the last few seasons. We saw how well he did at Wigan where he was also playing in, in midfield at times. And when Chelsea did go down to Brighton earlier this season, he was the, he was the man that won them the game. And I feel that they had a really good problem if that's the, if that's the way to look at it when when you've got two right backs of that quality i feel that in terms of which one i'd prefer to play i i think i would prefer lamptey but i feel that james is probably the more complete right back that is more dependable and i i wouldn't i wouldn't like to be the man that had to choose between them so uh, that Frank Lampard was a little bit unlucky in that situation, but it was a good problem for him to have. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I know um, Carl Walker's done pretty well and has had you know, an awful lot of minutes, but I think probably Manchester City probably missed a trick with uh, Lamptey there at right back. Speaking of City, Darren, they're in Greece on Wednesday for the Champions League tie against Olympiakos. The evidence from the domestic scene anyway is that they're inescapably in decline, aren't they? Yeah, you have to say that at the moment they don't look like a side that are going to find the consistency as things stand to land a blow in the title race. I mean, I was quite alarmed by the... just They were quite insipid against Spurs. I know Spurs' performance was very good, and we obviously got to give them credit for that. But I think as far as Guardiola is concerned, there is a wider issue. Only Ferguson in recent years has managed to rip up a side and rebuild another one in recent years. Managers these days just don't have the time to do that. Guardiola is now at City for longer than he has been at any club. So the challenge for him is can he rip up the City side and rebuild it? Fernandinho who is probably as old as I am, is still a key part <laughs> of his side. Aguero is getting, he's 32. And people are talking about a new uh, striker up front. Another talk is about Darwin Nunes, the 21-year-old, I think. He scored 17 goals for Benfica, I think, last season. Forgive me if I got that wrong, but I, I scored 17 goals last season. He scored five this season. The point I'm trying to make is that I see all of this stuff about Messi as a distraction. Messi is uh, not the panacea for City. And I know all of us in our industry are getting quite excited by it. But what Guardiola needs to do is rebuild the team. He needs to get players, whether it's players from the academy that he needs to bed down into the first team, like Chelsea are doing, like Arsenal are doing, like Liverpool are doing or whether it's bringing in the players who might not be that spectacular, but will be the sum of the parts to make City strong again, because they are a very good team at the moment. But the rebuilding project for them, it just doesn't seem to be happening. And I look at City at the moment, 
uh, everyone is, I know the bookies have still got them as favourites to win the title, and that is because we respect them. In the recent season, they've been brilliant. But I think that maybe that's a lack of respect for the teams that are consistent, who do have the players, who have rebuilt their sides to be able to go again. City don't look as though they've done that yet. Yeah, it looks like you know, Pep Guardiola's intensity isn't being replicated by his players. Does that suggest to you uh, that they've stopped listening to him? Not one bit. I don't think that's the case. I feel that even with how disappointing their performance was against Tottenham, we've also got to factor in the international break where a lot of his players were were used quite frequently. And we look at how well they played for their international sides, for instance, Phil Foden for England and Ferran Torres for Spain against Germany. And that doesn't go away overnight. I feel the players will have respect for him, for what he's done in his career. And that it, it won't be a case of that they're not listen, listening to him. Sometimes things just don't work out how a manager would want them or a player would want them to. When you look at his sides over the years, there have been clear, I guess, pillars of what works in a Pep Guardiola side. And I think it's just about finding that balance. Of course, he got that balance in his first years at the club, not his first season, his first years. And it's about finding the players that can meet those demands again, whereas that's not going to take a single year, I don't think. When you look at, yes, they challenged for the title very hard last season but then the down the the down from that is Silva leaving David Silva of course Mm -hmm. Sergio Aguero 32 years old now and then you've he's still had the issue of the defense to fix I'm not sure that's 100% fixed yet so I feel that it is just about finding the players that fits that fit his philosophy even more than the ones that are at his command right now. And the two-year contract he was just given, I think, should, in 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 theory, give him the time to do that. Whether he stays for, for that duration, we'll, we'll see. Mike, can I ask you? Mm. You, you, yeah. you, you go around the country, you know different club setups, you see all the, the work that people in the background do in terms of bringing through young players. What does spending huge amounts of money on a Messi say? What do you think it would say to the younger players who, you know, are fighting to get through, want to get into that first team and then they say a superstar, then so much money spent on a superstar? I mean, what sort of message do you think that sends out? Well, I think those decisions tend to be taken by people in suits rather than people in tracksuits. And... You know, it would be a commercial decision, a sponsorship opportunity, a marketing brand opportunity rather than a football decision because, you know, a a great, great player, but a great, great 33-year-old player isn't really what you want when you're trying to build a team. I think also there's a phrase, actually, I I heard it first used in Olympic sport where clubs or organisations can be drunk on money. I think I think there is a sense of that at Manchester City. They are spending huge amounts of money on players who don't quite fit the bill. Let, let's look at Rodri, for instance, and, and all these transfers that they're they're having. They're around about sixty million, aren't they? Now he really 
decent enough player and he you know wouldn't offend you if he was in your team but he's probably un, unable to shield that defense in the way that, that that team needs so i think that's the the issue and there are also some pretty glaring errors here and i I'll, I'll probably throw this to you art city have only scored i think it's five goals in six premier league games and that to me and i know i'm on dangerous territory here leads me to sort of make a comparison with man united because I saw a stat with Man United, I think it's a 7.7% shot conversion rate, which is the lowest in the in the Premier League at United. So both Manchester teams have got issues to deal with up front, haven't they? Yeah, I think when when you look at the that what you just said there just reminded me of the Anthony Martial chance against West Brom, where lovely move down the left comes into the box. He's the ball has to go in the back of the net from where he's, he's at. And I think that is an issue where both teams just have to be a much more clinical inside the box. And where that comes from, wherever it's... I don't think it's much to do with, with coaching in the sense where, as these players are professionals, they've they've been finishing these chances for almost 20 years from their childhood. I don't think it's just a simple case of, oh, okay, now we go on the training pitch and we practice finishing I think it's more in terms of the mindset that comes to when you're presented with those chances like the Liverpool example for instance whereas it's not a direct comparison in terms of finishing chances but when Curtis Jones who has been given opportunities in high pressure situations before when the a bigger opportunity comes his way he's prepared to fulfill the demands of his manager whereas that hasn't been the case with, say, Anthony Martial at Manchester United, where he has been very inconsistent since he's joined the club. I don't think anyone would argue with that, even though he is a very tan- talented player. He's been inconsistent since joining. And at Manchester City, I feel it's just a case of what is the the best way to go forward without David Silva? Yes, they've got Bernardo Silva, but then there's the Phil Foden issue of can you get both of them playing at the same level. And when you look at the West Ham game, for instance, where they go 1-0 down and they're chasing the game rather than being the ones that are imposing their will on West Ham where you expect them to, and they're depending on Phil Foden to come on and switch the game, I don't think that's <laughs> that bodes well for them for the course of the season. Uh, can I just quickly say, I think both Manchester clubs uh, might look at Harry Kane now and think a chance was missed in the summer because Spurs, there was a lot of uncertainty around the club. There was a feeling that maybe a big, big offer could have given at least Spurs something to think about. Obviously, they would have wanted to keep them with good reason. But when you see the way that he's moved to another level at Spurs and you see the the, the problems that both Manchester clubs have in attack, you see the way that, that they've, they've missed a trick. They've missed a trick. Big style City in particular, because they still have problems with Aguero. Jesus is a good player, but he's not in Harry Kane's class, I would suggest. And I think Spurs are the big winners for having him and showing their ambition to him and helping him to realise that he can compete with the title under Jose Mourinho. Yeah, in that vein, Darren, what about Dominic Calvert-Lewin? How long is it before he becomes a top target in the way that you were talking about Kane there is 12 goals in 10 games is that's the product 
okay, of personal improvement, but experience, coaching, managerial faith, and, and the right partner, in his case, Richarlison. Do you think he's a big transfer waiting to happen? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I mean, if you take those stats forward, it's 15 goals in 16 appearances for club and country this season. He is the product of coaching, man management. He, You can see how a head coach at a football club has improved a player when you look at Dominic Calvert-Lewin. The numbers were very modest. I think he'd, he hadn't got into double figures before Ancelotti arrived, ended up with 15 goals last season, well on course to smash that. He's already matched that already if you take into account his appearances for his country. And I think Ancelotti at the weekend was even talking about fielding questions about the golden boot this season, which is some tribute to a player who'd only had a modest return before he'd arrived. But I think he's confident. He is not snatching at his chances. His composure has improved. His ability to bring other people into the game has improved. And yes, I, I think eventually he will mark himself down as a player who could move up a level. Everton will want that to be with them. Ancelotti was asked about him. I said, look, the target is not the golden boot. The target is for him to score the goals to help the team to be at the top of the table. His words. So there are still big ambitions. And with Richarlison and others coming back into the side and a transfer window to come, which I think will be crucial for Everton, you still think they could punch their way in the race for a top four place, which is their target. Yeah, they talk about uh, Milik, isn't they? They're going to go there for about 10 million from Napoli. I don't really want to intrude on private grief, Art, but Arsenal, 476 minutes without a goal in open play. Reasons? It's just the main issue is they don't know what is the best way to get into the final third. And that's been the issue throughout the season. It's not been the defence. That's not been the issue. That was fixed last season under Arteta and has only got better with the arrival of Gabriel Magal Hayes at a centre-back where his impact has been amazing. But when you look at the balance of the midfield and how they look to progress into the final third, it's been an issue that has been there since the return of football in June. And um, although Danny Ceballos and Granit Xhaka were, I I wouldn't say exceptional, they were... (laughs) Hmm. the words (laughs) it's very I have to be very careful here Um, they did a job last season in terms of solidifying the midfield and also finding ways out of the defensive third for wing backs like Hector Bellerin and Kieran Tierney Bukayo Saka to venture further forward and that was the main way Arsenal looked to attack really through their wing backs and switch into a four at the back against Leeds. There wasn't that outlet until Bukayo Saka came on <laughs> in the second half. And then, of course, there's the risk of burning players like him out from playing so often while being so young. And for me, I think in terms of him in particular, there is the Jack Wilshere risk where Wilshere played... In terms of club and country, I believe it is over 50 games he played in the 10-11 season for Arsenal in England. Didn't really get a break because there were some internationals as well. And then he's injured during pre-season and we don't see him for 18 months almost. And I think 
Mikel Arteta did actually address these issues, not in terms of Wilshere in particular, but burning out young players. He did address it last season, both verbally and with his actions when he took Saka out the side for a lot of games in the back half of the restart last year. But I think having that reliance on players that young isn't healthy and he needs to figure out <laughs> the best way to to pierce defences and not have to rely on Bukayo Saka and Pierre-Emerick Bamming, who, who they haven't been able to rely on of late. So that's the real issue there, I, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, you know him, oh, you've got to know him pretty well, Arteta. He looked absolutely furious with Nicolas Pepe. What were the, What do you think the consequences of that will be? I think the way Mikel Arteta has run Arsenal so far, he's been very blunt in terms of his expectations for players. And if they don't meet them, there will be consequences. We saw that with, I think, the best example, although people may point to Mesut Ozil and Matteo Guendouzi, I think the best example is Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who was key under Arteta in the first few weeks, then lost his place in the side because he wasn't performing at the levels Arteta expected both on the pitch and in training and didn't see himself even make a start from January until uh, March. He was only playing as a substitute in the 90th minute and also played 45 minutes as a left back for the under 23s. <laughs> so that's where you see the kind of revolving doors, what happens now. And for him, he responded very well in lockdown and got his place back inside after that. Now you've got to look at Pepe. How is he going to respond to the way that Mikel Arteta views this? He said after the game that it's unacceptable. Didn't really elaborate on it on it that much other than it is unacceptable. And I think you could see in the way he looked after the game, he was fuming with that. And I think any manager would be because it was such a silly thing to do yes he was drawn into it but that can't be an excuse because you know if you put your head on on another player you're you're walking so I think he's going to have a lot of internal searching to do in the free free games he's not going to be available and for him more than anything it's going to be about how do I respond to this do I paint myself as the victim or do I respond as the player that Arsenal want me to be a leader on the pitch. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how he copes with it. We did, Darren, didn't we? We saw the worst side of social media after that uh, sending off. The abuse Pepe received was you know, beyond the pale, wasn't it? Yeah, we're not talking about football supporters here. We're talking about thugs. We're talking about, talking about pond life. We're talking about people aiming N-word slurs and on all kinds of racist slurs towards a guy who, who's basically done something wrong at work. And it's it's the worst side of football. Arsenal and Leeds have done well to come out and condemn that kind of abuse. Uh, and, and we obviously have to recognise it and do the same. I, I think Pepe is a frustrated figure, whether he's frustrated with his own form, whether he's frustrated with the form of the club, I think that he's in a position now where he's at a crossroads uh, and he's got to decide what he's got to do in order to fight his way back. I think in the wider, in wider context, 
the problem isn't Arteta. I think what the last game against Aston Villa, which really did alarm me, as well as this game has proven, is that there is some way to go in terms of the investment at the club to improve the, the team and the squad to a level that they can compete with the other teams in the top six. Arsenal aren't yet at that level. And during this conversation, we've talked about the way in which other clubs have spent well, integrated those new signings into their first team, and they've got the wheels turning. We've talked about Timo Werner and the job that he does on the left compared to Aubameyang, who was scoring goals off the left last season, seems to have deserted his scoring. His scoring touch appears to have deserted him this season. Lacazette isn't doing enough up front. There isn't enough creativity, and you could see why Arteta wanted Husim Awa in the summer and, and tried to do that deal and failed. And I think Arsenal have got some way to go before they can address those problems. But I would suggest it's the problems that need to be addressed rather than anything to do with Arteta. Yeah, in the final uh, couple of minutes, I just want to dwell on our just a simple question, really. Does anyone know the rules anymore? I don't. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Art, Art, do you want to take this first? Yeah, I, I, I think after the last two days, I, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> because West Brom versus Manchester United, Conor Gallagher isn't given a penalty. How was that not a penalty, I, by the way? I, I have no idea. A few minutes later, Manchester United are given a penalty. And then a very similar situation occurs at Elland Road and Arsenal aren't given a penalty. I, I didn't think it was a penalty, by the way. I'm just saying Arsenal weren't given a penalty. And it's, especially the Conor Gallagher one, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling. I, 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 I can't really figure out the reasoning behind why um, these situations are being handled in the way that they are but um it is very confusing and i'm sure you guys will touch on it but not just for uh, viewers but for the people who are playing the games and managing the games too well that's the point i think isn't it darren the players patrick bamford kevin de bruyne say they don't know what's going on the managers are doing the same almost every manager that you 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 ask lampard Klopp. Roy Hodgson, they hate the handball rule. Will anything be done? No, I don't think it will. And I think a big problem is a wider one. I think that we've pushed and pulled apart the game so much that even sometimes 50-50 decisions that sometimes we wouldn't bat an eyelid. Now people are questioning them and the referees are second-guessing themselves. It was ridiculous that David Coote could make a decision over the Manchester United penalty, for example, and then be advised by a guy in his ear to go to the the screen at the side of the pitch and then him change his mind when his first decision was the correct one. And just before the international break, I was at the West Ham-Fulham game. And afterwards, Scott Parker, it wasn't really widely broadcast. I thought it would have been, but Scott Parker went into a long monologue about the game we've all fallen in love with. The game that we played on parks, the game we played in the playground at school, it's been pulled apart, dissected, reinvented. It's had so many cooks uh, that it's everyone is trying to make it into an exact science. And most of the people trying to do that have never played the game. And we are ending up with a situation where every week 
we are debating decisions. And it isn't necessarily VAR that's the problem. It's been implemented in other countries successfully. It is the people in this country who are operating the VAR. And it's the people who are making experienced officials suddenly abdicate their responsibility and hand it over to people who don't have anywhere near their experience. I fear, Mike, we'll be back here again. Yeah, well said. And I suppose it's a cultural issue more than anything else. Now, you know, I know you're going to be too young to remember this, Art, but um, David Ellery was a terrible referee. Officious, picky, consumed by self-importance. Now, somehow he's become the dominant influence on IFAB. He's pushed through 178 largely unnecessary rule changes in three years. No wonder no one knows what's going on. In an ideal world, and it's not ideal, unfortunately, I'd replace him with Howard Webb as soon as possible. He's got the respect of managers, players, and probably critically, Pierluigi Colina at FIFA. If they get on the same wavelength, maybe... Just maybe we can concentrate on the football rather than some preening ninny in a committee room or their accomplices in remote TV studios. The confusion can't go on. What do you think? Please let me know. Uh, And in the meantime, thanks to Darren and Art and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.